It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Wes Streeting, someone touted by allies and opponents alike as a future Prime Minister. An exceptional political talent, and you're about to find out why. Um, Don't forget, forthcoming shows include some phenomenal guests. Uh, My next guest on Monday the 13th of June is Gary Neville. That is going to be a unique evening. Uh, Two weeks later, on Monday the 27th of June, my guest is David Davis, one of the first Tory MPs, if not the first Tory MP, to call on Boris Johnson to resign. Of course, the first ever Brexit secretary. Stood against David Cameron in 2005. Always a fascinating, surprising uh, individual, David Davis. So that would be great. Two weeks after that, on Monday the 11th of July, my guest is the Speaker of the House of Commons. Someone who has started to creep in, not just to my stand-up routines, but into these interviews. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle. So they are three very special nights, the next three. Uh, My tour, uh, a lot of the regional dates have uh, effectively finished. I'm doing five nights at the Soho Theatre in London from the 14th to the 18th of June. Uh, They've almost sold out, so get your tickets quick for that. And then I've added a date in Leeds at the Wardrobe Theatre on Friday the 8th of July. And my rearranged Peterborough date at the Key Theatre is on the 13th of July. And then I'm in Edinburgh at the festival from the 3rd to the 28th of August doing the show and I will be doing some political party specials and my guests for those, oh my God, three absolutely incredible guests for those shows. Gordon Brown, Anna Sawa and Joanna Cherry. So on the 7th of August, I'll be interviewing former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. He is finally coming on the show. I cannot wait. On the 15th of August, Labour leader, Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sawa, always great fun. And the 22nd of August, the first time I'll have interviewed her live at the SNP's Joanna Cherry. So three very different guests with uh, very different uh, things to say. Uh, All three of those will be superb uh, shows. They're all at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, Tickets for all of those you can find at mattford.com. Uh, as well as tickets for the political party shows. Uh, now, just before we start the show, um, this uh, and, and Wes is superb, and, and you totally see why he is um, so respected across the political spectrum, and why his name is, you can sense it seeping out in the public more. Um, uh, uh, this was recorded on the same day that Nottingham Forest uh, had their victory rally in Nottingham after getting promoted to the Premier League. Now, I know some of you like football. I know some of you are Forest fans. I know for a lot of you, football may well be the bane of your life and it probably drives you mad when it seeps into other things like a political podcast. Um, but the day before, we'd got promoted to the Premier League. Now, I- I'm sure, maybe even just by osmosis of listening to the show, we've not been there for a very long time, for 23 years, and we'd never played at the new Wembley. So... Uh, I was very lucky to be at Wembley and see Forest promoted. And then the day after, on the Monday, before the show, uh, in Nottingham at midday, I co-hosted the Victory Rally in, in the Market Square. It's one of the most exceptional experiences of my life. So the reason I'm telling you that is, <laughs> I think listening back, I may not be as articulate as usual. I, I was just emotionally overwhelmed. Um, 
And you know, in all my years of gigging in venues of all sizes, I've I've never really experienced anything like standing on the balcony of the council house and just seeing tens of thousands of people. You just couldn't see any pavement at all. It was just people everywhere. Uh, and and to celebrate Forrest getting back to the Premier League, so I, I legged it from there, got on the train and made it to the uh, to the venue in time. But it was obviously just. I think at times I said a bit emotional. It's obviously very embarrassing in retrospect, but it, it was an incredible experience to go through. So, um, so there you go. Uh, so that's why. Uh, but but actually, there was at least, well, at least two people um, at the Duchess Theatre that had uh, been at Wembley as well the day before. So that was nice. So anyway, there you go. And, and thank you to all of you that have got in touch and tweeted me about it. Um, and especially nice to hear, obviously, Forest fans, but people who say, oh, you know, I listen to the podcast. I'm not really into football, but I'm very happy for you. Um, you know, it means a lot. It, it, it always does. Anyway, I'm becoming inarticulate now, and this is a few days later. So on with the show, the phenomenal West Streeting. And before that, uh, the ramblings of a delirious, uh, newly promoted Forest fan. Thank you very much. Welcome to the political party. Someone has put something on stage. Who put that up here? Who did that? It's a programme from yesterday's playoff final. Oh, I don't know if you've seen the news, but Nottingham Forest are now in the Premier League, which is... Oh, I don't, I've already got one, so I don't want to take one off. Whose is it? I found it on the floor You found it on the floor of the ground? It's basically litter. But thank you very much. Would anyone like... Is, are there any Forest fans in who didn't get a programme? Yeah. Yeah? I'm basically re-gifting in front of your face. I'm sorry about this. Any other gifts that people found on the ground they'd like to rehouse? There you go, mate. Oh, sorry, you work. <laughs> I can't see it. But oh, you can keep it if you're a Forest fan. It's cool. Just on the... Oh, thank you very much. Well, what a lovely start to the show. Um, my God. Um, it's not all going to be about Forest, obviously, because that's not politics. But, um, I mean, I say that. There are political implications, of course, that I'll try and work in. Uh, did anyone watch it? Yeah. <laughs> well, the wave of apathy is uh, really uh, demoralising. <laughs> I'm, I'm very... Um, Sober, you should know, first and foremost. But uh, I just, uh, I don't think I've been partying, because I haven't. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with emotion. That, um, I'm obviously realised now, I've been in Nottingham all day at this parade where the atmosphere was infectious, and now I'm here in London where, you know, it, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> That's understandable. You're not Forest fans. So you're here for politics. I totally understand it. But, oh, my God, what a wonderful world we live in. Obviously, the Sue Gray report is out. That's the main thing. Uh, not the, uh, th- imagine if someone would have thrown that up on stage. <laughs> I found this on the floor of Parliament. I thought you'd like it. Uh, There's an amazing bit of PMQs, actually. I don't know if you saw it last week, where Keir Starmer was uh, having a go at him. But there's a bit where <laughs> Keir Starmer just... As Boris Johnson's sitting down and finishing, Keir Starmer just goes, he's delusional. <laughs> it was this amazing... Just I thought, do that more, sort of, under your breath. I was a fucking idiot. Well, the problem <laughs> Jamie Oliver has been uh, campaigning outside Downing Street uh, against uh, the government U-turning on their obesity strategy. So, funny thing with Jamie Oliver. One, I agree with him. And two, I agree with his right to protest. But when I see him saying something that I agree with, exercising his right to protest, I fucking hate him. (laughs) I don't know, somehow he's made two positives into a negative. I don't understand why I'm against... At one point, he went down there with an eaten mess. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the most obvious thing. The interview he does with Krishnan Guru Murthy, where 
This is how stupid he, is, he thinks he's the country. He explains to us on camera why he's chosen an Eaton mess. You're like, yeah, we get it, mate. And he's, it's not the, you're not the first person who's like, I did it because an Eaton mess, it was obviously Boris went to eat and you're like, really? <laughs> oh, how stupid. It's like so David Bentley. He's like, Eaton, yeah, school he went to, so. Uh, and you're going to like this, made a mess, so. Eaton mess. In a way, so, yeah. And finally, uh, Nicholas Surgeon has contracted COVID-19. I mean, there must be a part of all of us that thought, wonder if she called it off the IRA? <laughs> no? <laughs> Meets the leader of Sinn Féin one day, three days later she goes down with COVID. She's like, this is definitely biological warfare. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in Scotland, it's easier to catch COVID than a train. And other jokes I won't be doing at this year's Edinburgh Festival. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest is someone that I've always wanted to book and have wanted to interview for a very long time. But one thing I've learned from doing this is sometimes you're better off just waiting and letting people actually have a bit of a career first. And Wes has certainly done that. I actually can't believe he's only been an MP for seven years because his prominence and his stature has continued to grow and he already feels like he's been around for a very long time. Um, but he does already feels mega experience. To a lot of people, he is Labour's brightest talent. The bookies say he is the favourite to be Labour's next Prime Minister. Who knows whether he will win three or four elections on the trot. <laughs> Maybe even five. Tonight we're going to find out why. Please raise the roof for one of the most talented, if not the most talented politician in Britain, West Reading! <laughs> Cheers, mate. That was a terrible, terrible introduction on so many levels. You've raised the bar of expectation uh, up here. You basically said this is going to be the career-ending interview. And then you said, I've only been in Parliament for seven years, but it feels like I've been around for a long, long time. So thank you very much for that. Great, great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Some guests dress up when they come to the West End, but, you know... It's... Well, you know... That's it's cool. It's, it's recess, so. <laughs> And that is specifically um, San Miguel, which I believe is Kia's beer of choice. I'll just put that over there then. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually asked, I actually asked for Peroni, by the way. But fuck, oh, you know what? I did. Yeah. You did. And I, I did actually ask for Peroni. You did? Yeah. Am I in trouble? Prime no, Minister? no, no. I don't want to do a Lisa and Andy and be fussy about the beer at the start of the, start of the show. Well, that wasn't the only She's thing. She's more Lisa up and... herself than I am. <laughs> That wasn't the only thing Lisa and Andy mentioned. She mentioned some WhatsApp messages... She did. ..that you sent her. She did. Uh, what was it about now? She, you were on holiday, she said, and you were sending her some provocative right, first messages. First of all, I was not on holiday. I was on Out a of visit, the country. I was on a visit to Israel looking at medical technology. <laughs> on the beach. And... <laughs> not on the beach. Um, and I was with Medical Aid for Palestinians as well. Um, Very important to both sides. Has, um, but anyway, <laughs> since Lisa decided to go through our uh, back messages, I thought I would... Um, indulge us all briefly this evening with some of the exchanges that I have with comrade Lisa. Um, so just go through the... Ba basically, we're messaging each other because obviously there's been this sort of total August silly season come early of who's going to be the next Labour leader? Is it West Streeting? Is it Lisa Nandy? Is it Rachel? You know, and, 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 for the, and for, I think, the two of us in particular, it started to feel like we couldn't blink 
without the criminologists getting in and being like, what does this mean? Are they running? Um, and so I messaged just say, like, this isn't all just completely ridiculous. What's it? I was looking in from outside, saying it's crazy from the outside. People need to calm down. And anyway, she then made these messages sound a lot more salacious than they were, mm. or at least those ones. So I went back through my back catalogue. So there are others. What, she, what she's been saying. Um, so, I mean, actually, they're not that salacious. We've got um, 8th of May, I say to Lisa, brilliant on BBC, exclamation mark, so it's sincere. Um, <laughs> she then says, the next day, because I was on the day after, and you this morning, full stop, which I was a bit worried by. But then she said, I enjoyed the belligerence, with an exclamation mark again, so effusive. And then back to um, Tuesday the 19th of April, she says, this is going to be bad news for my office, buddy, can you send me Peter Carl's number? My phone has eaten it. She just doesn't have it. Um, so I said, suspect you blocked him. Don't blame you. She says, cheers, only a matter of time. And I send her Peter Carl's number. Um, so this is the kind of relationship that Lisa and I have. That's um, nice. But she made it sound far more salacious and, and exciting. And what about messages from other people then? So... Who else you... What other major politicians do you message on a regular basis? All the big names, yeah. All the big, all the big names. Tony Gordon? No, no, sadly, no, I don't know. You're kidding me. No, we're not, we're not text buddies. No. Email? No, we're not pen pals either. <laughs> no. Um, I, did, I, had to, I had a really nice day with Gordon Brown, um, just, it was just before the Scottish Labour conference in Glasgow, and um, myself, um, Annie McGovern, Abner Oponasari, we went up to... Um, his house in Kirkcaldy, five years, where he was the MP and, and, and still lives with Sarah and the kids. And it was, it was quite re- remarkable. And at a time when there is so much cynicism about politics and politicians, you know, we'd seen him on the telly that morning doing kind of a big, um, you know, media round about how the international community needs to hold Vladimir Putin to account for war crimes in Ukraine. Um, so he's kind of doing the sort of the big global statesman Gordon Brown we're all used to seeing. And then we get to his house, where since then he'd been doing a whole load of Zooms. And then he took the three of us out to um, this big sort of warehouse in Fife that he'd helped um, a community group that had been running a food bank to get, where he has been leveraging in millions of pounds worth of unused stuff from Amazon. And they're basically distributing it to families right across Fife. You know, things like duvets, beddings, other household essentials. And, you know, of course... The fact that that is necessary in this day and age in this country is a moral disgrace. But I also thought the fact that you've got here a former Prime Minister who still lives in the constituency he represents, with his sleeves rolled up, helping the local community, I think speaks very well, not just to Gordon Brown, but to a breed of politicians that I think are far more prevalent than the people looking at porn on their phone in the House of Commons. (laughs) I heard about this the other week. I'm not betraying any comments because you've already said it. Jonathan Ashworth sent me some photos, and Gordon Brown is literally in a warehouse in like the outskirts of a village in Scotland with printouts of paper of literally names and addresses of people. He gets yeah. unused Amazon stock. Gordon Brown has said to Amazon, send it to my constituency, and I will distribute it. And he's literally got like just doors knocking sheets yeah. of people that are going to get like a kettle or a toaster or like. I don't and know. you imagine what it's like. So you get there. 
And, and again, it's contra- in stark contrast to the sort of persona that was sort of written about Gordon when he was the Prime Minister, sort of, you know, quite stern, very serious. He's there with his sleeves rolled up, and literally any time someone walked in, it was like, oh, where's, have you, met, have you met Sarah? Have you met George? George does this, and he does that. And he was literally doing, like, you know, potted biographies of every volunteer there that he's gotten to know. Um, and there was just this energy and kind of dynamism about the guy, which I just thought was inspiring. It's so cool. I mean, I can't think of... What's mad is, until now, it's not really had, like... I've not heard about this anywhere else. It's mad that that's not on the news and that he hasn't done a press release. You know, the fact that he's just sort of doing it under the radar. Yeah. Former Prime Minister, yeah. former world leader. The world leader who rescued the global economy is in a warehouse... <laughs> Basically running these own mini Amazon Business operation. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. The photo, I mean, the photos are private. I would never share them. Uh, would I? <laughs> no, but they're just, they are. You, I mean, it's exactly as it's been described. It's yeah. a former prime minister just distributing stuff. It's like a sort of Dell boy for free. He's just got like a, a flat full of boxes that are like... You know, probably probably just... the only person to have described Gordon Brown as Del Boy, but yeah. It's amazing. So, you, you, you occasionally see Gordon. You, I, you must occasionally talk to Tony Blair. Yeah, from time to time. I mean, I think there's a, there's, a, um, there's a whole generation of people in the Labour Party who've got experience that most of us in, Parliament, in the Parliamentary Labour Party no longer have, of having one three general elections, of having delivered things in government. Um, and so, frankly, when you look at the scale of the challenge we had after our fourth election defeat and our worst election defeat since 1935, of course, you know, we want their advice. Um, and the, 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 the challenge for us, and I think the challenge for the Labour Party, and um, I think I've got a decent sense of your audience as a, as a listener um, over the years, I think, frankly, the challenge for... Um, people who would consider themselves to be the modernisers in the Labour Party or from the revisionist tradition or people who were very supportive of New Labour um, is, to, is to make sure you're looking to the future and not trying to play the greatest hits. I'm sorry, Matt. Oh. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you've got to look to the future, not to the past. You, yeah. learn, you learn from the successes um, and you're humble about the things that didn't go well and the things that you wouldn't want to repeat. Um, but I've never understood in the Labour Party the sort of... the the obsession with constantly talking about the things that went wrong and not celebrating the things that went right. Because if you, if you say to the country that we weren't good in government, why would they put you back there? <laughs> and under Keir Starmer, it feels that that sentiment is shared in the leader of the Labour Party, which hasn't been true of everyone who's followed Tony Blair. So when you saw, I mean, there was a video they did celebrating Tony Blair's election victory recently that failed during the local elections. It was actually striking to see Tony Blair on a Labour video again. There's fr- fridge magnets. You can get, like, a fridge magnet with a 97 manifesto on with Tony's face on, and I thought, this is a bit different from yeah. the <laughs> Labour shop of recent years. And how many did you buy? No, I didn't. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I shouldn't say this because I should be actively pushing the Labour shop as a... They're a bit flimsy. Like, I, I'm not being funny. When you buy... Has anyone got one? Yeah, so uh, one person in your audience has got one. does not sell that they've gone... Tell me they've gone very well. But they... They're sold out. Well, people would say Tony Blair sold out a long time ago. But, uh, <laughs> um, 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 more seriously, so don't, let's delete that bit. Don't, I'm sure he'll be listening. We're like, uh, it, what? Uh. Well, I heard West Streeting say that I'd sold out. <laughs> um, 
I know, sort of praising Gordon Brown and, and, and trashing Tony Blair is just like, yeah, this is fatal on your podcast, isn't it? Um, no, but the, um, the, 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 the magnets were flimsy. I, I kind of expect when you buy a fridge magnet, you want one that's got like, you know, a decent width to it. It's got to stick out on the front of your fridge. You don't want one that's just sort of... Yeah, so if any, any of the Labour merchandisers listening, you know, we want, we want chunky fridge magnets this time. It's like a rat in a moment. <laughs> a, I, mean, I mean, they're so flimsy, they're going to end up in Gordon Brown's warehouse. I mean, people, people over Kakotti getting free fridge magnets for the Labour Party. Um, the reason I ask, and obviously people know what your politics are, and I know what your politics are, but it's been odd in the post-Blair era that for a long time... Blairism is, in a way, didn't speak its name, that people kind of had to either not say it or there just weren't many about. Do you, in a sort of purely political, almost in a calculated way, think, well, people know I'm a Blairite, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, and if I do talk about it too much, it might, at some point, hold me back if I want to leave the party? I think it's, I think it's just such a... It's become such a meaningless term. I mean, I think the term Blairite became meaningless when someone described Tom Watson as a Blairite. I mean, this is... The, <laughs> I don't think Tom would mind me saying this is the guy that, that brought Tony Blair down. But is in the Blairite column, and I think it's become a, a sort of a lazy label attached to um, people who... And, and a really broad suite of, of people who wouldn't have themselves been Blairites back in the day. But, I mean, for someone like me, I mean, you know, Tony Blair... When, I, when Tony Blair became Prime Minister, I was 14 years old, and I was 24 years old when he left office as Prime Minister... So it's, it's always felt slightly odd to me that people have tried to um, kind of describe my, prime, my, my politics um, according to someone who hasn't been Prime Minister for donkey's years and, and was, um, you know, without sort of making people feel old, you know, he was, he was part of my kind of political childhood and young adulthood, not part of my sort of political present in that sense. So, I mean, you got involved in politics very young. What was it that turned you on to politics so young? Tony Blair. No. <laughs> no the, the, why, why do people keep on calling me a Blairite? No, um, um, no in all seriousness, so um, it was, it was a, a couple of things. Like, one is, I, I remember before I sort of became really politically interested to the point of um, wanting to join the Labour Party... I had a very strong sense of a Conservative Party that wasn't for families like mine. And I distinctly remember sort of politicians like Anne Widdicombe giving speeches on family values and talking about single parents in a way that I found very offensive as someone who was brought up by a single mum. Um, and, then, you know, and my dad was around, by the way, so I, I have to always point this out. I actually lived with my mum for the first half of my childhood, lived with my dad for the second. They've both always been in my life. But... Nonetheless, I know my mum always felt very strongly that people like her, you know, sort of teenage, a teenage mum, um, was vilified in the media, particularly um, in the 80s and 90s, and ironically by a kind of back-to-basics um, conservative government that w- weren't practising what they preach, I and mean, imagine that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I already had a sense the Tories weren't for people like us. Um, but there was a genuine excitement in the country in the run-up to 1997. Politics was kind of climbing up the news agenda. 
Um, my school had a mock election, and I stood very proudly as the Labour candidate in, in the school mock election in 1997. Came a respectable second to the Monster Raving Looney Party, um, which I thought was a very respectable result. Um, probably literally the only Labour candidate who didn't win on the 1st of May 1997 was me. Um, but I learned, which is why I've bucked the trend and won my seat ever since. Um, but it was, it was genuinely exciting. And I, uh, you know, I, I loved that kind of period of politics and the excitement of the new government coming in, the genuine sense there was change in the air. And there was an awful lot of good the Labour government did. I mean, there were times where I sort of fell out with the Labour Party. Um, some of those times, I think, wouldn't be much of a surprise. You know, I... Um, left the Labour Party briefly over the Iraq War and the introduction of top-up fees because, you know, I was a uh, student at the time and felt we were breaking a manifesto commitment. Um, wasn't out the Labour Party very long so, until a friend sort of said, what are you doing that for? You're never going to be a Tory. Just join the party and get involved. Loads of people agree with you. Um, more surprisingly, I, I did leave the Labour Party briefly. I think when I was about 17, it would have been, um, when Ken Livingstone stood to be London Mayor against Frank Dobson. Uh, and uh, thank you, Richard. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I went to uh, campaign for Ken Livingstone, which um, oh my would be God. a surprise given the relationship Ken and I have now, which is in the deep freezer. <laughs> you got any WhatsApps? <laughs> which is, which is where he would like me to be as well. <laughs> I, I do not have any WhatsApps with Ken. No. Um, but yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's. So did you start as like a. Teenage radical? Were you kind of? Oh, I, was, I, was, I, I mean, I, signed up to, I, was, I used to get my socialist campaign group news in the in the post at university uh, for a year or two until I was like, no, I don't think this is quite where I am. Um, but yeah, no, I sort of started. That's why I, um, occasionally to cheer Labour MPs up during the Corbyn years, I'd be like, well, I was a young Corbynista once too. We can all go on a journey. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope people people move move along. Um, you know, John Cryer was my was my um, first MP in Hornchurch. Um, not my first MP because I had other MPs when I was growing up, but the one that I kind of knew of, and, and where I knew who my MP was, and, and John kind of brought me into the Labour Party and got me involved. But I get how you're in a single parent family. I mean, our backgrounds are very similar, so I totally understand how you end up there. But what is it that turns you on to the Labour Party at such a young age? Was your mum political? Were, did, were there political books in the house? Uh, my nan was very political. She was involved in the Labour Party in, in Wapping. I mean, her politics were kind of on the left of the Labour Party. I mean, she used to do all kinds of crazy stuff, um, which I wasn't so, so conscious of as a kid. My main political memory of my nan as a kid was that she was either off to Labour Party meetings um, or she was dropping leaflets off at my mum's house and my mum was saying, don't tell nanny we haven't delivered them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I've, I've heard some great stories about her since. I mean, there was... Um, uh, during the whopping dispute, she, um, as the sort of... There was obviously the big... Uh, you know, pickets and, and protest lines in Wapping. Murdoch was relocating there. And she lobbed a brick at one of the lorries and it went through one of the windows. Um, but she had to get a friend of hers, um, who later I came to know because he was the secretary of my CLP. Um, he took the rap for it because she had a criminal record and so she was really worried if she got, if she, if she got caught, she would have ended up back in prison. Um, I mean, and rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Um. Wow. So actually, the origin story is more grandson of a yob. <laughs> <laughs> you left over Aspos. <laughs> uh, yes, I can't believe it. All this stuff on crime. Um, 
And um, what else? Oh, there was another time where she said to my mum, she's like, um, I'm, I'm off to um, demonstrations when um, Maggie was shutting down the GLC. Yeah. So my nan went off to this protest at County Hall and she said to my mum, don't worry if I don't come back for a while. You know, we're doing this protest. We're, gonna, we're occupying the building. And that was all she was saying. So she went off and, um, and basically she'd gotten into County Hall um, posing as an international student. And she'd had a backpack full of um, like tinned foods like, to keep them all going, except she forgot a tin opener. So um, she wasn't a very... I don't think she's a very good kind of occupier in that sense. Just smashed it over you with need, a brick. Yes. Um, yeah, she, uh, yeah, so I, I, think, I think when it comes to sort of the nefarious criminal activities of my maternal grandparents, the problem is they weren't very successful. You know, my nan... My nan got done on account of my granddad's business, although she did get away with a brick. Um, uh, uh, but my granddad had a string of convictions for armed robbery, so he was in and out of prison, because um, uh, he wasn't very good, so he always got caught. So what, what level of armed robbery? What sort of places was he robbing? Oh, I think it was like low-level like post offices and um, like shops and that kind of stuff. But he didn't, he didn't hurt anyone. <laughs> Was I wouldn't he... describe them as victimless crimes, though, for the record. Yeah. This has destroyed any chance of me ever being Home Secretary, hasn't it? <laughs> but were you, uh, was he one of those lovable rogues? Do you know what I mean? Was he cheeky, good-looking? He was, well, he's quite old and alcoholic when I knew him. Um, um, and also a very violent man. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the, 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 for me, this is the tragedy, right, is that... I can't believe he's an armed robber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that when I look around in the House of Commons that some of the people I work with are any more honest, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing about my granddad, when I, when I used to talk to him growing up, because um, like through that phone and like the glass. <laughs> no, 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 we did. I did. I did go and visit him in prison once. It was not a pleasant experience. Um, and. Uh, yeah, I was really disappointed because he, he, he was wearing this kind of shirt with like blue and white stripes and, and like trousers. And, and I, I genuinely thought he'd have like those black and white striped tops with a ball and chain around his ankle like in the cartoon. So I was quite disappointed. Um, but he, um, when I talk, used to talk to him, I, I, I always thought he was um, smart, uh, very well read. He did a lot of reading in prison. And he had a lot of time to do it. Um, and I just thought, you know, why is it that someone who is evidently smart has ended up leading this kind of life? And it was only later in his life that he sort of opened up to my mum about, you know, his own childhood, the abuse he suffered as a child, and the impact that had on his life. And as a result of um, him being in and out of prison during my mum's childhood, um, I mean, my, my, my nan was pregnant with my mum when she was in Holloway Prison and she gave birth while she was in prison. Um, and, and so all of that had an impact on my mum's life. So I, I think I'm lucky in that sort of my generation is probably the bit of the family where um, we've, we've almost stopped replicating that kind of cycle of disadvantage that passes from one generation to the next. And, and you've never robbed a post office? No. <laughs> Not yet. No. And also, but, you know, I mean, sometimes the things you read about yourself on social media, there is this, there's an online conspiracy theory 
that I burned down a pet shop when I was at university. I'm, I'm not kidding, right? There is this guy, he, he basically creates um, false screen grabs, and they're very, he's got a great imagination. I mean, hats off to the guy. Um, and he basically posts this thing where um, it makes it look like I'm replying to someone when I'm challenged about whether I burned down, you know, this pet shop to get into a drinking society at university until my, you know, very influential dad, he's a car salesman, but, like, my very influential dad got me off, you know, with the police. And I reply saying, the charges were dropped. <laughs> you know, as if to say, like, it's like classic non-denial denial. And I thought, the level of, of, of imagination that goes into creating that kind of online conspiracy theory. But there are now pet shop truthers. They are genuinely pet shop truthers who are now utterly convinced. And I, I've got to be honest, right? I mean, I, I try to be um, well-behaved on social media now. Because sometimes I do have a tendency to incite... Um, trolling against myself. Um, so I went to see the Pet Shop Boys on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so I tweeted, I tweeted a picture with, you know, at Pet Shop Boys with three flame emojis. <laughs> and there are now people who are going, he's not even bra- he's brazen about it, look at him, look at him. Right. I would imagine. Flaunting his arson on the internet. Why hasn't he been arrested? I'm just waiting. One day, I'm going to be walking down, like, you know, Stockton High Street or somewhere on a visit, and I'm going to get wrestled to the ground by a citizen's arrest from a pet shop. (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, obviously, it's also very funny, but... I must admit, I do laugh. There is some of the stuff that's said about me on on Twitter. I mean, I've got such heavy, like, restrictions on my notifications now, so I only see, like, adoring comments from people like you. Um, but, um, no, sometimes you dip in. Um, it's like reading below the line online, yeah. on, on online op-ed, um, like, Guardian comment section or something. But um, some of the trolling does make me laugh. They're, you know, some of, some of my trolls... I think I, I attract a quality of troll that has a good sense of humour, I'd say. So what other stuff do you get? Um... What's the other stuff? I'm trying to think about some of the other stuff I get. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know if you can call it trolling, but I mean, years ago, I, I, I kicked off because the Labour Party was making staff redundant from the parties not long after Jeremy Corbyn took over. And we, we took a stand um, against McDonald's having a stand at party conference. Yes. And I decided, probably unwisely, that this was, a, you know, this was an issue to take a stand on, the stand. Yeah. Um, and I used to work at McDonald's, and, you know, so now I get, like, the kind of, you know, you're a big, you know, you love McDonald's, and there is actually a tweet I did actually send, not like the Pet Shop Truthers one, where I think, well, it was years ago when I was involved in NUS, and I said, I'm so broken, I have to go to McDonald's. But I actually think that's relatable content. Who has not been in that condition where you're deeply hungover and need a McDonald's? But, so, you know, they, so I get that kind of stuff thrown at me. And then, of course, the, you know, the usual nasty bile. I, but I've got a skin like a rhinoceros, so it doesn't... Well, but I have to say, a very smooth rhinoceros. I mean, it's probably inappropriate, but as well, whenever I see you on telly, as well as thinking, oh my God, he's composed, he's assured, you know, a phenomenal communicator, I just think, his skin. It's just so radiant. What is he doing to his skin? So what is your regime and, and how, how can I replicate it? This is the sort of content I need to generate on TikTok, isn't it? I'm not actually on TikTok. I, like, lurk on TikTok and watch, like, cat videos and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, 
No, it just, um, you know, a bit of face wash. Yeah. You know, washing your face, I think, is a good thing to do, Matt. That's what it is, washing your face. But you do seem, I don't know if, you just, maybe you're just a healthy... I'm, I'm considerably younger than you as well, I think, it's the... Do you know what? We're the same age. Fucking hell, life's not being kind <laughs> to you, has it? I'm 39. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> don't do this, man. <laughs> Did you genuinely think I was older than you? Yeah, I thought you were quite a bit older than me. <laughs> How much older? How old? Okay, just be honest then. Let's just deal with it. I thought, I, I thought you were four, 40 years old. Just, Ge- a, just a very little bit older. How old Maybe like you... 39 and three quarters or something. Uh, you just no, probably... I thought you'd be like in your early 40s. That's a compliment though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Because it's about... Well, because, you know, uh... because you've, you've done so well in your career and you're... Stature, and you've been, you know, introducing Forrest today, and it's yeah. sort of been really exciting. <laughs> oh, I. Do you know, I had to, I had to say, to, I had to say to the team today, I was like, I need, I need the rundown on this. What, what, what has happened with their <laughs> promotion? What was the score? And I've got to tell you, Matt. Yeah. The, I, I, the lines I was given to take are, are basically unusable. Um, I was told um, you only won on an on an own goal. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was told there were two penalties that arguably should have been given to the other side. Yeah. So basically it was a bit of a fluke. And oh, yeah. I said, I can't say any of that to him, yeah. he'll cry. Yeah, especially at my age. <laughs> <laughs> You're very sentimental when you get to my age, Wes. Because <laughs> that's how hard I worked at McDonald's as well. How long did, did you? you? Yeah. Did you? How many stars did you get? None. <laughs> Same as my first Edinburgh. And it was... Um, <laughs> I think I did about three shifts. I didn't last oh, okay. very long. You know what I found about it? I don't know if you had this. Was I, it's, it's the most stressful job I've ever had, the most demanding job I've ever had. And you are basically a robot. You're just absolutely programmed to just put the packages down, bring the thing down, and all this. It's just so automated. It's the closest thing to automation using the human body. And then at night, I would go back just brain dead. And then I would just, all night, I would dream about making Big Macs. <laughs> Even in my sleep, I was working for McDonald's. Oh, wow. It was just like... It, it drove me mad. I, had, I did three shifts and was just like, I can't handle. The trousers, I don't know if you remember this, no pockets in the uniform. Yeah. So you can't put your hands in your pockets. And actually, if you go, that doesn't sound like, if you stood up all day and you can't put your hands in your pocket, I was like, that's cruel. <laughs> but I just, I found it. I left with just an admiration for everyone who works at McDonald's because I actually couldn't hack it. And they gave me free food and I still left. <laughs> Man. So I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how long you were there. And how many stars did you get? I got three stars. Yeah. Um, I, left, I left before completing the... Because I was there for about a year. Um, yeah. I, I, I didn't mind it. Um, the worst thing was getting the bus home, especially in the summer, and you would just reek of grease, especially if you were working in the kitchen. I always used to try and work on the tills. But there was a bit of a problem with gender stereotyping in my local McDonald's in Romford because they basically used to put all the girls on the till and all the boys in the grill... And, of course, I wanted to be on the till. Because I was like, I don't really want to go that green. <laughs> my, my skin. Uh, <laughs> That's all it is. It's just a sheen of fat. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, much prefer, I, much preferred, I much preferred working on the till. No, I, I, I enjoyed it. But now I, went, I, I progressed to Comet. So I was electrical retail. And, um, and I was on the customer service desk, which I can tell you was a riot at Christmas. <laughs> it was so much fun listening to someone tell you why... I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a great job, like, and it was a bloody awful job sometimes. Like, so you would, on one hand... It's a bit like being an MP, actually, in terms of casework. So 
you will find someone whose whole life has gone to ruin at the last minute. So, like, you know, the cooker has gone on Christmas Eve. Um, and, like, total kind of family yeah. nightmare. And then... But then... And, and they would sort of be the most patient sometimes. And then you get people whose, like, VCR had broken. And they'd be like, what are we going to do at Christmas? <laughs> like... I use look, any number of the toys that you've got there or just watch the telly or and, and you know so you'd have to deal with like or talk to your family d- or talk to your family well I mean let's not go too far um, I've told you about mine um, but you know you've got I, I think and sometimes finds an MP you meet people who's I mean sometimes I come home from my surgery on a Friday I'm taking this a very serious direction now but sometimes I, I come home from my surgery on a Friday and just sit in the dark sit on my own and just sort of process what I've heard because you deal with people who've got the most unimaginable, awful stuff going on in their lives. And then in the next breath, you'll get an email from someone that, with a problem that isn't even anything to do with the MP, but it will be like, you know, what are you doing about this? You better drop all this now. I need such and such sort. And you think, why is it the people with the biggest problems are the most humble mm-hmm. and the people with the most trivial problems the most demanding? And what is the answer to that? Not one a politician should give when they put themselves forward <laughs> for election. Um, no, I, I think sometimes you do have to manage people's expectations and you do have to say, you know, there are times where I say, well, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but we've, we've got any number of cases I'm dealing with like this and we prioritise and people understand. There was one time in Comet where... <laughs> And this, this woman was just being really, really arsy about a dishwasher. She's like, my dishwasher's broke for Christmas. What am I supposed to do? I said, use some fairy liquid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing I still stayed in my job. Uh, and what did she say to that? Um, I think stuff that's not repeatable on a family show like this. Um, and then she asked for the manager, which is always my favourite moment in any conversation. I can imagine you being really good in like a customer service role. I, re- I actually really enjoyed it. I, 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 enjoyed, I enjoyed customer service a lot. I, you know what as well? I bet you'd be a really good salesman. I bet you... You know what? I would walk in looking for a stapler and if you were the salesman, I'd walk out with like plasma screen telly, a car, a four-poster bed. I'd just be like, no, you're right. I do need a bed to go with a stapler. And... <laughs> That definitely runs in the family. As I, as I mentioned, my dad, my dad sells car, cars for a living. So um, he's getting towards the end of, of, of the month. Um, and I, I pop around to see him. And he's like, you and Joe want a new car? And I was like, well, we didn't get our current one that long ago. And he's like, I can do you a really good deal. And you know, he's just like, he's just focused on getting across his sales target. And so lo and behold, I was like, well, let me check with Joe and find out. And next day, we're in the showroom, the paperwork's being signed. Um, and and my, my, um, my brother, um, Liam, works in um, Levi's. And I only popped in to see him um, uh, a few weeks ago when I was doing some shopping. And I only went in to and I came out with three pairs of jeans. <laughs> so it definitely runs in the family. And what I, what I love about my dad and my brother is they were totally ruthless about exploiting me as well. They were like, doesn't matter if you're family. It's like, right, sales, sales. I mean, I was literally, I was like... All right, yeah, obviously, and I got decent, at least my brother gave me a discount. My dad didn't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm sort of taking the jeans over, and my brother's like, um, any belts with that? Any socks? You want a t shirt if you're going away? And it's like, oh, God. It definitely run, that definitely runs in the family. We've got the gift of the gab. So, are they political? Uh, not, not, not to the extent that I am. I mean, my, my dad has been a lifelong Tory voter. 
very disaffected at the moment. He's kind of protest voting green. Um, what? Yeah. No, it happens, honestly. That's why when, when people assume if you withdrew candidates, you know, of, of what you might consider the sort of progressive centre and left, that all their voters would just go to the anti-Tory candidate. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of protest voters in there that, that you know, like my dad, who'd, if the Green choice hadn't been there, he, his choice wouldn't have been Labour. Um, my dad my, and my granddad, his dad, not the arm robber, the... Um, <laughs> You know, former merchant navyman, former Royal Navy in the Second World War, civil engineer, like very, very different kind of East End um, working class like man. Six different origin stories, depending on what like, audience you're in front of. You're like, ah, oh, yes, my granddad was in the services. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my other granddad was an old robber. You're like, this is. Well, they're no... both. I mean, they're both. They're both East End families, but um, what? And, and both, I guess, stereotypical in their own way. So. You know, my, my mum's side of the family, um, I kind of already described. Um, <laughs> my dad's side of the family is kind of more a sort of East End working class Tory, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of outlook, very patriotic, um, proud of Queen and country. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's very different sort of, diff- very, very different kind of outlook on, on my dad's side of the family. But I, I'd say... Thinking about my brothers and sisters, most of them would now kind of lean Labour. I guess um, a couple of my brothers, I think they, they kind of, I think they mainly spout off Tory views to wind me up. Um, I think a couple of them might have voted to leave the European Union just to spite me. Uh, but yeah, no, most, most of my brothers and sisters are, they're kind of more of my kind of policy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So your dad's politics then, do you think that's what gives you a good instinct for that part of the country? That you're not just from a Labour tradition that kind of, I think, and it happens on any side of politics, they never fully actually understand their opponents. They don't emotionally understand why people vote Conservative and and the sort of positive reasons that people vote Conservative. Obviously, you have that. You have that sense of patriotism, of pride of place and history. Is it too simple to say you get that from your dad or does it come from somewhere else? I think my dad and my granddad, I think, I think it is as simple as that, actually. I grew up, I mean, the, the most influential person in my life by country mile was my dad's Tony dad. Blair. My gra- no, it's my, it's my, no, it's my dad's dad. Um, you know, we, I used to spend every weekend with him. Um, we were very close for the 10 years that we had together, um, or 11 years we had together. And there's so much of my kind of 
kind of formative years and conversations were spent with him. And we used to have lots of debates and arguments. So he wasn't someone who would sort of try and impose his opinions, but he would challenge, he encouraged my love of learning. Um, so I, I definitely get a different... I've always had a different perspective. Me and my dad would often argue about politics as well when I was growing up. So that, I think that does help because, you know, if you want to win people over, you have to understand where they're coming from and you have to find common ground. And actually, one of my frustrations with Labour politics... Um, you know, for, for much of our history, actually, is that some of the things that I, I hold to be true, um, the Labour Party has too easily ceded to the Conservatives. Like, I, I think it is a, is a left-wing position to be tough on crime because if you've grown up in a community where you see drug dealing on street corners, where you've got antisocial behaviour your, with your neighbours, where you've got all of the sort of the symptoms of, of kind of poverty manifesting themselves in those ways, yeah, you, 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 want, you want law and order, you want, you want policing on your side. Um, and that's why the, the tough on the cause of crime stuff was also important. But, you know, you only have to read Orwell to find plenty, you know, plenty of stuff in there about patriotism, love for your country. Um, and one of the things that has really begun to, many, many things that make my blood boil about this government, but you know, Suella Braverman and the way she spoke to Emily Thornberry last week, as if somehow she and her party have a monopoly on patriotism and love for our country, is a total disgrace, not least when you look at the way they're trashing our country's institutions and behaving in the heart of government. As well as that instinct for, for, for that part of the country, you also have a composure that is so rare in someone who's only been a politician for seven years. And I remember seeing you at a Young Labour thing, must have been about 2005. And I didn't really get involved in Young Labour stuff. I would occasionally go to things and I found it sort of quite intimidating. I remember seeing you speak at this thing and I was like, oh my God, you were just so impressive. And it feels like some people take a lot of time to develop their talent. It feels like you're, you are like a Phil Foden or a Rooney where you're just like, Oh my God, he's 17 and he's the best player at the World Cup or something like that. I mean, I don't know if you have a sense of that of yourself, but it does feel like you, you have a composure. How am I supposed to answer that? Yeah, no, it's exactly what I think. I wake up every day thinking I'm just like Wayne Rooney and Phil Foden. <laughs> but you know what I mean? You can sort of sense that. I mean, I've definitely got an arrogant streak, but even I'm not that arrogant. <laughs> but I think people sort of pick up on it. They go, oh, he's really good. And I mean... It's mad that you've only been an MP for seven years. I mean, does it feel it's like... Been an eventful, it's been an eventful seven years. It feels like longer. And it hasn't... I mean, it's, it's, it's a, this is a weird thing to say, right? But I, I used to say, until sort of Keir came in, um, I love my job, but I hate politics. Because there were so many things that were going on throughout that kind of turbulent period where I just like... What the hell is like? You know, what the hell is going on in our country? It was like one thing after another. It was, you know, general election after general election. The murder of Joe Cox, the Brexit referendum, um, uh, Labour leadership elections coming out of our ear holes. Um, <laughs> it's it was it was uh, it was a formative time, but at times very very unpleasant time. And then you came, you know, we sort of came out of the 2019 election thinking, you know. The Labour Party has just taken an absolute crushing defeat. 
we've now got to think about how we kind of rebuild out of this. But at least there was a sense of, well, we know what politics looks like for probably the next four or five years. You know, clear majority conservative government, there aren't going to be knife-edge votes. Um, so the, the path forward looked a lot clearer, and then the pandemic hit. So it has really been one thing after another. But you've got... You are clearly a sort of very talented person, and obviously what that brings is a lot of speculation about your ambitions and your future, and I spoke to Lisa and Andy about this about a fortnight ago, is you and her are probably the most outwardly loyal members of the Shadow Cabinet. You, Peter Kyle, Lisa and Andy, and Pat McFadden are just always out there. You know, you never I'm give... Sure, yeah. You never give a bit of daylight. You never do that sort of qualified... Well, I think Keir's doing... Pretty well, you know, we've all seen those interviews. You don't do that, and I get the sense that that's out of a genuine loyalty. Well, he makes it easy. Bluntly, Keir Starmer makes it easy. He is a thoroughly decent person. He has got a lifetime of public service under his belt. Um, He, because of his career outside politics, he kind of brings a professionalism and a professional edge to the way that he he conducts um, his work. you know, f- frankly, I sort of spent, uh, you know, years on the back benches when I first came in and w- was never on the front bench and didn't want to be on the front bench. And he's sort of given me opportunity after opportunity on things that I'm really interested in and care about. You know, the Treasury brief, the schools brief, and now um, sh- being Shadow Health Secretary. Um, he's put a lot of trust and faith in me and, and, you know, I feel the same way and repay that trust and loyalty through hard work. And one of the things about the sort of the silly season we've had recently about the, the sort of speculation of, of, oh, you know, will there be a leadership contest? Will Wes be standing? Well, pe- people underestimate the extent to which we're a team and we're Keir Starmer's team and we are absolutely determined to make sure that he walks through that black door of number 10 and that we're part of the first Labour government since 2010. Why do you think some of your colleagues struggle to sometimes be as full-throated as you are in defending him? I don't, I don't know that they are, if I'm honest. I, I can't think of examples where people you know, don't, you know, don't go on the airwaves and are sort of you know, challenged about whatever the story of the day is or, you know, what Labour's position on X or Y is um, and don't give kind of loyal answers. I definitely think it's taken a while for the Labour Party to get its self-confidence back. Um, but I think we've got that now and I think it is a mark of the success that Keir's had in just over two years as the Labour, pa- Labour Party's leader that when he was first elected, people were saying, oh, he's got to be... Um, uh, Kinnock, Smith and Blair all in one and now just over two years in people are saying well he's not on course for a landslide majority yet is he <laughs> um, and there, there is an element of, of, of truth in that which you know Keir makes very clear to us all the time which is we've come so far but we've got a lot more work to do we can't be complacent we can't rest on our laurels and crucially we can't rely on the Tories failure we've got to win the trust and support of the country but to see an expectation shift so quickly from can Labour ever win again to why isn't Labour so obviously winning next time is a remarkable um, amount of progress I think in a very short space of time 
He's a very impressive individual. Um, what's he like as a manager? Because it's very odd to go, you know, before the election, you're basically colleagues, and then he's your boss. Does that, has the interpersonal dynamic between you changed? No, not really. I mean, I like working with and for Keir because he's pretty upfront about what he wants, very professional in, a, in how he goes about it, so are the people around him, and that's, that's the kind of clarity and direction that you want in a leader. Um, you know, there, there are times where, you know, in Shadow Cabinet, he'll make his frustrations clear as well, and... You know, I say to him, I quite like angry care. Um, I think sometimes, you know, you need a bit of a rocket up your backside and you need to, you know, you need to be challenged and you need to be stretched. Um, so we get that too. Um, and actually, I think the fact that um, you don't see running commentaries from shadow cabinet meetings is also a real sign of the, the strength of the team and the cohesion of the team and the sort of the collective determination to win. So he's not just getting angry at the world and the Tories. He, he sort of will directly challenge members of the shadow cabinet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's not. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get a proper dressing room like dressing down. Like you don't turn up and be like, you know, Wes, what are you playing at the other day? That was a load of rubbish. What you said to Matt Ford. Like you're not doing that again. I mean, um, Wes, he looks 37. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, he. But yeah, he's he's the he's the the biggest enemy of complacency in the shadow cabinet, I think. Um, and he's very level-headed and hard-headed and serious about the sort of the challenge, I think. As you say, the contrast with his predecessor is stark, not just with the Prime Minister. Those Corbyn years were hard for a lot of people. Did you ever consider joining the independent group, leaving the Labour Party? No, um, never. I mean, I, I've never... Um, attacked the people that left because I understand what they were going through and I had lots of the same misgivings um, and, and very serious misgivings on things like anti-Semitism, um, uh, you know, some of the positions that were struck, particularly around foreign policy and this, this Skripal poisoning in Salisbury. Um, but I made a different moral judgment, actually, which, which is that there will always be two major political parties in this country, especially with the electoral system that we have. And I felt that to surrender Britain's main opposition party to that kind of politics um, would be irresponsible and, it's, and in itself a morally challenging question. Um, and I, I stay true to my principles throughout. I... Um, said what I, you know, what I believed in. And when, actually, when I stood for election in Ilford North in 2015, I put on all my leaflets. You may not always agree with me, but you'll always know where I stand. And that's, that's the kind of politician I sought to be before I became an MP. And it's, I've tried to stay true to that since. It was very uncomfortable because I am instinctively a loyal person. And, and actually, although I can see, you know, I can build cross-party alliances... Um, I don't have a problem going for a pint with people with different political views. Otherwise, that'd be very awkward going going to see my dad. Um, <laughs> you know, I I am I am tribally Labour, and I believe that the Labour Party is and always has been the best vehicle for social change and progressive change in our country. And my anger with the Labour Party 
is that we've spent far too much time in opposition and no, not nearly enough time in government. And we've got to break this cycle in British politics where we have extended periods of Conservative rule interspersed with brief periods of Labour government that tries to correct the damage and then we let the Tories come in and do it all over again. There must be periods of time when you fantasise about being in government. It was just natural in any job to, to have ambition and to think about that. But you must think, oh, crikey, imagine walking through the front door of number 10 as a, as a cabinet minister. What would your ideal, obviously you shadow secretary of state for health, would that be your ideal health and social care? Would that be your ideal brief? Or do you think, actually, one of the big four? No, no, actually, um, no, no. I mean, I'm, I, I think being the health secretary is one of the best jobs you can have as a lady. You almost sound like you believe it. No, no, genuinely. No, no, the funny thing is, right, so Sajid Javid did um, Nick Robinson interview and there was this sort of, I think, slightly thoughtless throwaway line where he said, well, I was offered the job of health secretary and, of course, I had to really think about whether I wanted to do it and I just thought, you know, it did not take me a second when Keir phoned me and said it's that or nothing. Very late, in re- very, very late in reshuffle day, by the way. Uh, really? Like, oh, it's awful. It's like, it was my first experience of a nerve-wracking reshuffle in a way, because um, of the phone... I mean, the, actually, ironically, the phone did ring when Jeremy was leader, but the answer was always the same. Um, what, so Corbyn offered you roles? He didn't phone personally. I was, uh, I think in his first round of appointments, I was asked to be um, a shadow health minister. Because okay. I, did, I did public health in local government. Um, and, and I sort of politely declined. Um, at one stage, I was asked if I wanted to be John McDonald's PPS when Naz Shah resigned, which I thought would have been an interesting combo. When they offer you that, are they sort of joking? <laughs> are they going, I did wonder. speakerphone? No, I, did, yeah, see what I, did, I did wonder. I mean, I did wonder. I mean, it's, I think I always had a, a, a decent working relationship with John McDonald because he... Um, obviously, he was the Shadow Chancellor, and I was on the Treasury Committee of the, of the House of Commons, yeah. and he used to get the Labour members in, and we used to talk and, you know, and, and sort of offer constructive um, <laughs> feedback. Or, um, but no, he was, you know, he was, he was professional to deal with. Um, but, yeah, no, it was... I just... thing is, I, I, it's because I'm a loyal... Uh, and, a, and a loyalist, in a way, that... Um, I understand you, when you sign up to being on the front bench, you sign up to collective responsibility. And, and so I was honest with them and said, look, there are bound to be issues where we part ways, and I don't think it's good for you or for me if I'm resigning and leaving the front bench. Um, and I just thought that would be inevitable, I'm afraid. So, um, but when Keir became leader, I had no expectation of going into the shadow cabinet. That wasn't, I wasn't expecting to go in the first round. So I was kind of pretty relaxed in the way that you know, some of my friends and colleagues were not. Um, and then the, the, the second reshuffle, um, where I was given the child poverty brief, again, very late in the day in the reshuffle, and there'd been, you know, I don't think I'm breaking any confidence to say that was you know, not the most successful reshuffle in the history of reshuffles. Um, but so when the health job came in, I'd kind of been told to expect a phone call but then nothing came for hours, and I was like, is this like the time when the post-it note with Angela Eagle fell on the floor in the cabinet room and the, you know, the poor woman lost her job? Is this going to be like one that's like, oh, no, where's this 
sorry, mate, but, um, you know, would you like to be on the procedures committee instead? Um, but no, I, I was over the moon. I, you know, I, I, I had no expectation of, of what, what the job would be. Um, but it, it's, it's obviously a brilliant labour issue, but it's something that I care very deeply about, um, not least given my own experience with kidney cancer last year. Um, and I think that the NHS is one of the greatest institutions that our country has ever built, built by a Labour government, but it is also undergoing its biggest crisis in history as well. So I'm excited by the, the prospect of being able to do the job in government, of trying to turn around that terrible NHS backlog, but also to reform the NHS to make it fit for the future. Um, it's a slightly daunting challenge as well, but it's also one of those issues that will be a key general election issue. So on a whole range of fronts, it will be, you know, it's, it's just, it's really exciting. And I, 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 so that's why I said, you know, when Keir offered me the job, there was no hesitation. And I went straight back to my team and they were, I mean, actually I, was, I wasn't very nice. I kind of sat down and I sort of, because we had just sat around having dinner, we were about to have dinner. So I just sat down nonchalantly and said, oh, so what are people having? And then like, the waiter came over to take the order. And, I was getting, and you could just see them all looking, thinking like, did, did you get a call? Did you get a job? What's going on? Um, but I, I, I eventually my excitement gave way and I, you know, <laughs> so I was health, shadow health secretary. When you get the uh, My theory is, the reason it took so long to get around to you is, started with Angela Rayner and then gets to Wes Streeting. Maybe he just does it alphabetically. And Wes, there aren't many Labour MPs that come after you in the alphabet if you do it by first name. True. Does that make you feel better? No. No. <laughs> so, um, you get offered health. But, I mean, there must be... I think there's a part of every... Particularly Labour politicians who are, like, on the crime stuff that thinks, give me Home Secretary. You know, <laughs> let me just be a tough guy for a bit. Talk about, like, yobs and thugs and all that sort of thing. Cleaning up our streets. More, more cops... Are we talking, talking about my grandparents again? <laughs> But you know what I mean? I think, I think you'd be really good at that. The health stuff, obviously, but what I think... What are you trying to say? Basically, you say, you say oh, health, get out of... You know, <laughs> you've not done very well on that. You should go and, do, go and lock people up. I think Home Secretary would really suit you. Don't you think? Well, I think I like Yvette Cooper, and I want her to speak to me tomorrow, so I'm not answering that question. No, the truth is... Um, but she, would, she might be Chancellor by that point. No, the truth... The, the tr- <laughs> you can deal with Rachel. Uh, OK. She's, she's Foreign Secretary. Um, no, I, I, the, 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 the truth is, for me, like, the, the issues that, that I kind of care most passionately about and would really like to get my hands on in government are these kind of public services, health and education and... Um, you know, beyond that, the, the sort of, I guess, the, the and, and linked to that, you know, sort of my driving mission and the thing that I care most about in politics is wanting to close the gap in income, wealth, power and opportunity between kids from the wealthiest and poorest backgrounds. And I'm very lucky to have a job in health and social care, which is absolutely instrumental to narrowing that gap in life chances. And, you know, when you, when, when you judge this government, I mean, there are so many things to criticise, but there are some really fundamental things that are going wrong. Why is it that life expectancy in this country is falling? Why, how can it be in Britain in the 21st century that life expectancy is falling? How can it be that in a city like Colchester... You can go from one end of the town to the other 
and life expectancy falls by 10 years in one city. And this is Colchester. It's not when you think about some of the parts of the country that um, are most deprived or challenged. You don't think of a place like Colchester, Britain's oldest city. Um, just been awarded city status, but that's exactly what I saw when I was. Me. That's what I saw when I went there. You know, and I went. You know, the, the food bank there have had NHS staff coming in to use the food bank. There's a big story recently about NHS staff who are using the food bank, and and that's you know that's where we've got to with the Tories. You've got life expectancy falling, you've got child poverty rising, and you've got people who would normally consider themselves to be on decent enough incomes getting by now really struggling. Uh, and that is not just a consequence of global factors or the unexpected of a war in Ukraine or pandemics, though they play a part. It is the direct response of the choices made by successive Conservative governments since 2010. And we have got to get them out because they don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand what life is like for most people in this country. And they can't be the solutions to the country's problems because they are part of the problem. You're running very low on San Miguel, so um, could we get a, cu- a couple more San Miguels on the stage, please? I mean, mine's run out as well, but that's just um, by the by. Um, so, um, you mentioned that. Thank you so much. Joe Walker, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Cheers, Joe. Oh, full cam. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I'm going to leave mine closed because Joe's in the audience and, and he, will, he will judge me very harshly for opening a second can. And... What if I open it? Oh, yeah, you can open it. <laughs> Spotted a loophole. Um, so what, he would judge you for drinking too much lager or the particular brand? Oh, no, he's not, he's not snobby. Um, uh, no, I think, no, it's just, you know, it's the professional setting. I mean, I know I've come dressed down Friday, but, you know. <laughs> On a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you got kidney cancer. Very young to get it. How was it spotted? By total chance. I had um, kidney stone. Uh, I went into hospital on budget day um, last year in absolute agony um, to the point they said phone an ambulance and Joe drove me in um, and was in, went through A&E, they did a scan, was there for hours and, and they basically said you've got a kidney stone, um, we'll let you go and then they sort of came in and said look the urologists have looked at your scan again and there's something on your kidney, probably nothing to worry about given your age um, and health but Um, we want to investigate further to reassure ourselves and reassure you. Um, And uh, a number of false starts and um, wrong scans and delayed scans later, and um, I got the diagnosis sat in a car park in Bury, where I was about to go out door knocking in the snow, and uh, the hospital phoned early and and said it it was kidney cancer. They said they'd caught it early. So I was reassured from the outset I wasn't going to die, which is absolutely a thing you most want to hear at that stage. Um, and, but, you know, it was, it, it was a frightening experience and it, was, it, you know, it took me a while to kind of process it in my head and sort of emotionally digest it because, you know, I had all the Berry Labour team waiting for me. So I just sort of got off the phone, composed myself, went straight out door knocking, just kind of tried to compartmentalise it in my head just went out knocking on in fact if you go go back on my Twitter feed to last year if you've waved through all the trolls and the pet shop conspiracy <laughs> theories you'll find a video of me in Berry with like literally like big lumps of hail in my hair and sort of snow all over me because you know I was doing this video being like I'm here in 
in, in snowy berry and we don't just call in the sunshine. So I was just getting on with my job, which was the, which was the attitude I took pretty much until my diagnosis went properly public because I was absolutely determined because the hospital had said, look, you, you know, you're, you'll be in decent health. You, you don't ha- unless you're in any pain, you don't need to stop working. So I thought, well, I'm going to be off work for a long time, which for me is like, you know, nightmare. Um, so I was like, oh, God, it's going to be awful a few months. Um, so I just threw myself into the local election campaign, which took my mind off it. So without knowing... Um, all those Labour activists that I was meeting as I was going around the country helped me in a way that they could never have known and will never know, but it just helped me take my mind off the whole thing, and I really enjoyed the local election campaign. And then the treatment, was, was it surgery or was there chemo as well? Um, yeah, it was, I was lucky. It was, um, it was just surgery. It was robotic surgery. So um, I went into the Royal Free. Um, I'm actually, I'm hopefully going to see the robot that did the surgery. Because um, uh, I'd quite like to, you know, not, not say thank you to Robot. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I mean, I mean, I was a Star Trek fan as a kid, but I'm not that weird. Uh, uh, but no, I'm, I'm really interested because this is like a really interesting area of like, of, of like, so in thinking about my kind of my role now as Shadow Health Secretary. I'm, I, this this whole um, opportunity of the technological revolution and the way it can speed up diagnostics, treatment, aftercare, um, helping people to make better, healthier choices. There, there's, a, there's a potential for a patient power revolution in, in, in medical technology. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a grateful beneficiary of a robot that, with the assistance of one of the best kidney cancer surgeons in the world, took my kidney out. I mean, it's amazing that it sounds like it wasn't too... You know, given how some people struggle with cancer, it wasn't too bad. No, uh, no, and I always consider myself very lucky, which is a funny thing to say as, as someone who was 38 and given a cancer diagnosis. But um, I, from the moment I got the diagnosis, and I, I, said to, I remember saying to um, the urologist from King George Hospital who phoned... Who are you voting for in the local elections? <laughs> <laughs> on May the 5th, on a scale of 1 to 10. I'll put you down as a baby! Uh, no, I said to him, because... I, I said, well, I said, if, if I've understood correctly, um, I've got cancer, which isn't great because I'm 38, but you've caught it early. You're going to whip my kidney out, but it's all right because I've got two of those and I need one. So all in all, I haven't got that much to complain about. And he laughed and said, well, you've taken this quite well. That's one way of looking at it. And I said, well, if you'll excuse my language, you've delivered this shit sandwich rather well. <laughs> um, and that was the, all the way through. They were very reassuring. And, um, you know, I, I saw... I saw the best of the NHS. I also saw things that need to change about the NHS, and there were things about my own experience that, you know, absolutely chimed with what I see as a constituency MP. So there are things that I want to change about the NHS, but when you get something like a cancer diagnosis, it's amazing roles where machine kicks in. And I just remember thinking, when I looked up my um, surgeon and read a bit about who he was, I thought, God knows how much this guy would cost if he was treating me privately in the United States of America or somewhere like that. It is an amazing thing that we've got publicly owned, publicly funded healthcare, free at the point of use, providing some of the best medical treatment available anywhere in the world. And we, we need to kind of cherish that and harness it, but also deal with the fact that we've got the, the highest waiting list on record and the lowest patient satisfaction since 1997. Okay. I will open the floor up to questions from the audience. Oh, so dear, this is the risky bit. 
Uh, well, I think it's all, it all depends how you handle it. So, let's see if you could uh, indicate clearly, and I'll try and get if we could have uh, one sentence questions and one sentence answers, uh, ideally, um, and then we can get through it a few. So, if you indicate clearly, and I will come to you. It's the lady at the back in the middle there. So, if you were Prime Minister tomorrow, what would your first policy decision be, and what was the last bit? And how would you do it? Uh, I would bring back... Hanging. <laughs> OK, any other You questions? know, someone is now... Someone's now going to clip and caption that, and we're going to have a new generation of hanging truthers. Um, <laughs> alongside the pet shop conspiracy theories. Um, no, I, look, I, I, I want to see um, the next Labour government bring back a commitment to ending child poverty in our country. Um, I thought it was an absolute travesty that we were making so much progress under the last Labour government... And not only has that progress halted, it's been thrown into reverse. And uh, the, these guys don't even have the ambition to even try to end child poverty. Um, if they did, Rishi Sunak wouldn't have cut £20 a week from families through the universal credit card. Um, if they had, Rishi Sunak's spring statement wouldn't have plunged an extra half a million more children into poverty. And don't tell me the money can't be found... I mean, Rishi Sunak can just close some of those tax loopholes and don't tell me he knows, he doesn't know they exist because his family's been using them. <laughs> Excellent. OK, yes, the gentleman there. Uh, you mentioned under the current system that it can only be one of two parties. Would you work with other parties to see a victory in two years? Would you work with other parties to see a victory in two years? Um, so... I guess this sort of goes to the sort of the heart of the sort of campaign for a sort of progressive alliance where, um, you know, some people are arguing that we need sort of a formal deal between Labour and the Liberal Democrats and parties like the Greens. Um, I'm, I'm not in that camp um, for a number of reasons. One is, instinctively, I just don't think voters like the idea of backroom deals between political parties. But there is also... a um, a more practical issue, which is that people assume, like highly engaged political people assume, that if you withdrew the Lib Dem and the Green candidate, that all of those votes would go to the Labour candidate. And it's just not true. It's not even the case that if the Labour candidate withdrew, all of those Labour votes would translate into anti-Tory votes. Um, if you take a, um, you know, some of the Liberal Democrat seats... Um, I think that, particularly around some of the Brexit dynamics at the last election, if we hadn't fielded candidates, there are some Lib Dem MPs who wouldn't be MPs. So it's not quite as straightforward as it sounds. Um, the, 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 sort of the call for it um, is superficially appealing, and I'm not against working with other political parties where we agree on stuff. And we do that all the time in Parliament. We do it much more than we are ever given credit for, because it doesn't make for good television. If we all got, you know, if we went on the, you know, the Daily Politics or Politics Show, whatever it's called now, and, um, you know, if you went on and, you know, just said, oh, you know, I really agree with that excellent point you've made, Daisy Cooper. That's absolutely wonderful. Wouldn't it be great if we are in government together? Oh, and Anna Subri, love what you're doing. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, it just... I mean, people tried that with Change UK and didn't really go very well. So, um, I, you know, I, I think... I, I just think... The best way to deliver a Labour government is to campaign for and to get the vote out for the Labour Party. 
Um, that is the best way to get the Tories out and to deliver progressive change in our country. Also, people in other parties aren't always that easy to work with. People in our own party aren't always that easy to work with. <laughs> Fair <laughs> point. Bring on that progressive alliance. OK. Uh, yes, right down the front, sir. So uh, you don't think that the Tories seem to... The repu- their bad handling of the National Health Service and our social care system doesn't seem to sort of stick to their reputation. Do you agree with that? And if so, why? In part, I mean, I think... It's not Labour's biggest challenge at the moment. Our challenge is to turn dissatisfaction with the Conservative government into a positive yearning support for, appetite for, a Labour government. Um, And we've made loads of progress, but we're not there yet. We've got more work to do. Um, I I think, insofar as my own brief is concerned, it's absolutely my job to make sure the Tories don't get away with prosecuting the lie that they spout, which is the reason we've got over 6 million people on NHS waiting lists is because of COVID, or the reason that people are waiting ridiculous amounts of time for an operation is because of COVID, or the reason that 24 hours in A&E is no longer a TV programme, but the reality for so many people is because of COVID. You know, this isn't a COVID backlog. This isn't a COVID NHS crisis. This is a Conservative backlog. It's a Conservative crisis in the NHS. We went into the pandemic with NHS waiting lists already at a record 4.5 million. We went into the pandemic with 100,000 staff shortages. We went into the pandemic with 112,000 social care vacancies. So um, we've got to prosecute that argument about the Conservatives' failure and then kind of answer it with Labour's positive offer for the country. And again, in health, that means delivering the staff, the equipment, the technology that we need to... Um, bring down those waiting lists and give people outstanding health care. Um, it also means um, fixing the country's challenge in social care because, I mean, it's outrageous, really. The Tories are piling yet another tax on people in the name of fixing social care, and they're not even fixing it. I mean, the money's barely even getting there. And if there's one thing I'm absolutely determined to fix when it comes to social care is dealing with the fact that pay terms and conditions for people who work in social care are so utterly appalling that we are losing people from the social care workforce to go and work for companies like Amazon. And we need to be able to recruit and retain really good people to do absolutely vital and important work in social care. And by paying them more, by giving them better job security, not only will we recruit and retain really good workers to deliver great care, we will also be putting more money directly into the pockets of a workforce that are disproportionately working class, disproportionately women. I mean, that's a levelling up policy right there. And that's the way we can make a real difference, not just to people's health and care, but also to local economies right across the country. Just very quickly, I guess the essence of that question is, do you sometimes feel that all this negativity, all this 
Bad news for Boris Johnson. I mean, it's incredible. The guy got a fixed penalty notice, the Sue Grove report, all the other stuff, prorogue in Parliament, finding to have effectively broken the law in doing that. And he's still there. He's this sort of a movable object. Is there a kind of desperation or an exasperation that, even though the polling says he's less popular than he was, in a way, it hasn't finished him off in the way that it should have done? So I think that... If I were thinking about this purely through Labour's partisan self-interest, I would relish the contest at the next general election that gives voters a choice between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. But I'm affronted um, by the, the mere existence of Boris Johnson in number 10, given everything that he has done. Um, I... And I'm, I'm afraid, you know, I've started falling out with Conservative MPs who previously we've had a kind of decent relationship with, the sort of people you'd say hello to in the corridor, or maybe you've done some cross-party work on in the past. I, I, I think they have failed in their basic constitutional, democratic, patriotic duty by allowing someone to stay in number 10 who has broken the law, lied to Parliament, and and sought to divide our country in the most reckless and irresponsible way on a whole load of culture war issues because the Conservatives have concluded they can't beat Labour on the economy, they can't beat Labour on leadership, so they've decided to try and divide our country and hope that cynically they'll win. Well, I think the Australian general election where the Tories in Australia tried this with the same people who will be running the next election campaign here, that they showed it, it wouldn't succeed, and we've got to make sure that they don't succeed here. But, you know, I really do salute those Tories that are, albeit belatedly now, kind of standing up, speaking out, sending their letters in. But the question is, why the deafening silence from hundreds of Conservative MPs who know full well that Boris Johnson is unfit to lead our country? Why do they allow him to stay there? And having lectured us on our leadership over the years, you know, this guy is the Prime Minister. He's making decisions every day. And are you really telling me that given everything that's going on, that Boris Johnson is wholly focused on the cost of living crisis? Or Boris Johnson is wholly focused on the crisis in Ukraine? Or Boris Johnson is wholly focused on how we rebuild our public services in the aftermath of the pandemic and more than a decade of underinvestment? No way. Boris Johnson's focus is one thing, Boris Johnson's self-survival. They know it, you know it, I know it. And the fact he's still there no longer reflects poorly simply on Boris Johnson and his cabinet of cronies. It reflects, uh, I think, the rot at the heart of the Conservative Party and why they need a period of opposition to sort themselves out. Someone's had a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for the benefit of the people who listen online, by the way, uh, I have... (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm now on my... Well, glass and a bit yeah. of San Miguel. I'm not that much of a lightweight. <laughs> no, I? no, I was pulling you down. So, just before we let you go, Wes, and this has been phenomenal, uh, the final question... You say that, do you know, if you're a regular podcast listener, if you notice every single podcast... We've got someone really special this <laughs> evening. We've got someone absolutely... You're in for a real treat. You're in for a real treat. And then at the end, wow, it was just mind-blowingly amazing. This person is, like, the best person ever. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the introduction I got, and that's what he's saying now. I mean, you should be a politician. <laughs> But it's always true. It is. Now, come on, we've seen your guest list. <laughs> <laughs> it's I always... 
And that's why I love doing this. Is there's something special about everybody, isn't there? And I don't book. Well, that's why I love listen, That's why I love listening to your podcast as well, um, because you, you know you get like for, for for those of us who follow politi- politics and or worked in it or you know have an interest, you get that you get your enthusiasm from politics come through. And given so much of what we read and see of politics is just so utterly soul destroying at the moment, it is nice to be reminded of you know good people, good ideas, and the good that politics can do. I think. Exactly. So, thank you. <laughs> so, final question. If you went to Gordon Brown's Magical Emporium <laughs> on the outskirts of Fife and he said, Wes, you can have... He's basically like a genie. I will give you anything. What one item can I, could Gordon Brown give you? What a Labour you? government. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> Okay. That was easy, that one. I know, okay, but it has to be like a physical thing. Could be the sort of thing you get off Amazon. If you could pick one thing off Amazon that Gordon Brown would give you, give me for free. Yeah. Um, uh, Keir Starmer's book that's coming out and it's going to be available. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about a non-political? What do you need? Do you, do you need anything for your kitchen or your bathroom, living room? Oh, don't even get me started on that. I mean, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a leaky shower, so. Maybe go, you can't buy showers on Amazon, though. I bet you can. No, you, you can't. Well, you can buy whole shower units on Amazon. I bet you can. What corner of Amazon have I not been looking? This, this is my problem. Like, you look at my like, recently purchased, it's all like political books and, then, and, and Peppa Pig stuff for my niece. OK, so apart from that, what... Um, just trying to get a sense what, of... What's the, the answer you're trying to elicit? Well, I don't know. What do you want me to say? Well, just like... You want me to say, like... Oh, a rare unsigned copy of A Journey by Tony Blair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know, like a Morphe Richards four-sliced toaster. I don't know, whatever. It was more oh, to get that an insight into... That would be uh, genuine. I've only got a two-sliced toaster. That would actually be quite useful. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I looked at you tonight and thought, that is, he's got the air of a man... He's only got a two-sliced toaster. He's only getting two slices at home. <laughs> and he wants four. Wes... This has been very, very special. Uh, oh, we got, we got, we got a very, very special there. Oh so my this God. is like, but this it is has, genuinely special. But it's since I really mean it, and I've, I've put off booking you because I was sort of waiting for you to become prime minister. Um, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like he's given up on that ambition. Now. He's exactly, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't, never going to happen. Get him, get him know, in now. As I'm getting on as well, I just thought oh, I've probably only got five years left. <laughs> I better get you on while I'm still still got my eyesight. My ears still work. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what a phenomenal night! What a phenomenal guest! Please give it up for West Streeting. Thank you. Well, there you go, West Streeting. What a talent. And that bit at the end when he talked about Boris Johnson and why he wanted to remove him from Downing Street. I always think it's great in, in these interviews where you get to see all different sides of someone. And it obviously, Wes is so funny. I mean, his family history is absolutely berserk. And given all that, I mean, it's just remarkable how talented he is and how clear he is. I mean, he's such a compelling character. You just listen to him immediately has an authority about him that I think is obviously people develop their talents but I think he's always had that element um and can obviously think very clearly it can just talk so well but that steel at the end you know that that moral outrage um was was great to see as well um so what a phenomenal guest and uh, what a phenomenal night um and thank you to everyone who came thank you to you for the, downloading this 
you may be listening to this over what is the longest bank holiday I think in British history so um, enjoy the bank holiday enjoy a bit of time off and for those of you that are Forest fans uh, just enjoy basking in this feeling for those of you that aren't this is the last time I think I can't guarantee that obviously but uh, broadly I'm intending not to mention it again in the future oh I've got Gary Neville on next haven't I so okay it, it, it might get mentioned there but of course this show belongs to West Street and he was a phenomenal guest and I had I had held off on booking him because I, I think sometimes the time at which you interview people is important you want them to have done a bit of stuff first obviously you can always get people back and I'm I, I'm sure I hope Wes will come back maybe for a Christmas special um, and hear some stories about Maybe how his granddad uh, sourced some of their presents on previous Christmases. Um, But um, there we are. Have a great bank holiday. Thank you for downloading. Please leave a review. Please share and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.